Good morning. Okay. Would you please stand with me for the reading of the Word of God so we can honor it? This morning's scripture is coming from Galatians 6, verses 7 verse through 10. And it says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he sows to his flesh, will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit, will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap what we do not lose heart. If we do not lose heart, excuse me. Therefore, as we have opportunity to let us... Opportunity to let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. How, how are we doing this morning? Good to see everyone. Everyone looks wonderfully refreshed. Love the summertime colors. I, I do apologize on the front end. If I, if I sound congested, I'm not sick. I'm just coming on the other side uh, of that little head cold that is going around. So uh, 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 bear with me, okay? Uh, it's not COVID, uh, and it's not monkeypox, and, and, and you're not in the splash zone. So, so we're all good here, not, not contagious. Um, Man, shout out to you. It's so good to see everybody. Shout out to Deborah. Welcome, Deborah. So good to see you. Deborah was part of our college ministry back in the day. I lo- love seeing uh, old, old family come back. Uh, always family here at the Springs and new visitors. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, we are uh, this morning in, in Galatians chapter 6. And, and uh, before we actually get into this verse, can we just give it up to, to Thaddeus for preaching such a brilliant word? Come on, man. So, there you are. So good. Um, Brilliant, powerful. Um, I, you know, you said something at the beginning. You're like, if, if if the spirit takes over, feel free to to to, to run a couple laps of the church, and and nobody did that, but I did. I did that. Uh, you know, because you can do that when you watch live stream. You know, I was in my parents' game room upstairs, and I'm running from like room to room because when I'm super excited and no one's there to control me, I just start pacing, and and I'm like, Morgan, are you watching this? Are you seeing this? And then I would re-preach to her what you just preached to us that we just listened. And I was like, this is such a good word, living in the spirit, abiding with Jesus, confessing and, and yielding our lives to him. I was so encouraged and, and, and so refreshed. And, and two things happened in my soul in that moment. Uh, Jesus was worshiped. And uh, second, my standards for live stream participation increased. Uh, so what I mean by that is if you're joining us online, that's what I'm assuming you're doing uh, from home, uh, in, in the comfort of your own home, running laps around the house, not chasing your kids, but praising uh, the Lord in the comfort of your own home. Uh, but in all seriousness, thank you, Thaddeus, for leading us to Jesus and shepherding us in the Word. I love it. Uh, we're going to look at, as we close out this series, uh, uh, two specific verses, but uh, you're going to notice something uh, is going to happen as I unpack this text. Uh, and that is we're going to, in, in one way or another, revisit some themes uh, that we've already discussed previously through this book of Galatians. One of them is going to be this idea of the sinful nature of the flesh, another idea about freedom, and then a new idea about sowing and reaping. And we're going to tie it all together as we conclude uh, this series. So let's look at uh, verse 7 and 8 one more time. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. 
For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So uh, as we're closing out this, this book, I think it's incredibly uh, appropriate, and I just love how the Holy Spirit works, that, that we're doing this on the heels of, of Pentecost Sunday. Now, what do I mean by that? Last week on the Christian calendar, we celebrated Pentecost Sunday. And, and what is Pentecost? Well, well, in the Old Testament, Pentecost is, is this holiday on the Jewish calendar that was intended to celebrate the end of the grain harvest. Uh, some people call it the Feast of Weeks because it occurred seven weeks after Passover. Other people call it the Feast of Harvest because you're celebrating all the crops that you've brought in from your fruitful season and uh, bringing the first fruits to the Lord. It's called Pentecost because it occurred 50 days uh, after Passover. Remember that, Pentecost, 50, 50 days after Passover. Now, what's significant about this period in history when the first Pentecost was celebrated is that ancient rabbis and Jewish scholars believe that Moses received the Ten Commandments, the law, the, uh, uh, the 600 plus laws, seven weeks after the Jewish people left Egypt. So 50 days after Passover, which would be uh, this moment in history where God said, hey, find a, a spotless lamb, take its blood, put it over your doorpost, and the angel of death will pass over you, and, and you will live, and you will be uh, delivered from this bondage in Egypt and moved into the promised land. 50 days after that, Moses would come down from the mountain with the law. Now, it's important to point out that the law is a gift. Say that word with me, Gift. The law is a gift, and the law of Moses, the Torah, was intended to be this description of what obedience to Jesus, to to, to God, should look like. It was intended to serve as these boundaries and parameters for how to pursue faithfulness and embody the way of God to the world around them. It served as boundaries for relationship. Now, Pentecost... 50 days after Passover, Moses receives the law. It's a gift. The New Testament informs us that Jesus died during Passover. What does this mean? Is that Jesus himself became the spotless lamb whose blood was shed over the doorpost of our lives so that the angel of death could pass over us and we could enter into relationship with God. Jesus became the Passover lamb. And here's where things get amazing. 50 days after Passover on the Jewish calendar, we have Pentecost. And during Pentecost, we find the disciples huddled in a room, praying and seeking God, and a second gift arrives the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as Acts chapter 2 tells us, is poured over the disciples. Everyone starts speaking in tongues and languages of of the people around them. In in some ways, prophetically, uh, God is uniting the divided world and bringing Jews and Gentiles into his family. And now the law is not one that they uh, externally practice. It's now internally written on their heart. 
the, the second gift Jesus offered up as the Passover lamb, 50 days later, the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers. So now it's not the law that dictates the boundaries for relationship with God. It's the Spirit of God sealed inside of his believers, directing them into all godliness. This is an incredible gift. Uh, when we think about the Holy Spirit versus the law, there's a few things that the law can't do and was never intended to do. The law cannot remove our guilt, shame, and condemnation. Paul says the law only reveals it. And if you try to use the law to remove your guilt and remove your condemnation and re- remove your shame through your performance, some people say it's like looking into a mirror, seeing how dirty you are, and then using the mirror to clean yourself. It's not the purpose of the mirror. And the law in the same way just served as a mirror to reflect to us our condition before the Lord. Uh, The law cannot give us power to overcome the sinful desires of the flesh. The law cannot create an unhindered relationship with God by purifying our sinful hearts. Now hear me. One of the things that Jesus does in his life, death, and resurrection is fulfill that law so that you and I can be released from it. Jesus fulfills the law so that you and I can be released from it. This means that the condemnation and death that that I deserve, that you deserve, because I've sinned against God and his law, the Ten Commandments alone uh, uh, reveal that I am a sinner. And instead of being condemned for being a lawbreaker, I am welcomed into the family of God. Why? Because Jesus, who has always been welcomed by the Father, dies on the cross for the sins of the world so that you and I, who are rightfully condemned and separated from God, can be welcomed into a relationship with God as though we were Jesus himself. This is good news, church. And this is how Paul would say this this reality in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be to everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one who is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What does this mean? Well, this has incredible implications this morning if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Why? Because this means, hear me, that God's love for you and his acceptance of you isn't dictated by your performance. God's love for you and God's acceptance of you is not dictated by your performance or what you can bring to the table. And this is incredible because you can have really good spiritual days living on earth as it is in heaven, or if I can be frank, uh, really miserable days living in hell, and God's love for you and God's acceptance for you remains unchanging if you find your life in Christ. This means that there is grace for your life to, to stop, to end, to eliminate the endless attempts to justify yourself. Because who you are has little to do with what you are becoming 
or who you want to become. Let me say that again. Who you are has little to do with what you are becoming or who you want to become. You don't have to justify yourself to justify your existence and to justify your identity. And we do this all the time because we say things like this. uh, Look, world, look at how many social media followers I have. Look how important and worthy I am. We say, look, world, look how successful I am. We say, look, world, look how beautiful I am. We say, look, world, look how awesome my kids are. They don't act up like the other kids. And we find meaningless ways to to justify ourselves and display our worthiness. And this is what happens when we say, look, world, look at me. What we're doing is that we're presenting a sacrifice to the world, hoping that it'll accept it and give us love and approval in return. And God's love, God's approval, God's acceptance of you is not dependent on the best version of yourself. God's love, God's approval, and God's acceptance of you right now in this moment is not and will never be dependent upon the best version of yourself, the the version that you envision one week, one year, 10 years, 20 years from now. He loves you and he approves of you right now because when he sees you in Christ, he sees the precious lamb whose blood was shed to bring you into his family. God's love, God's approval, God's acceptance of you is not dependent upon the best version of yourself. Uh, Which means uh, that God's love and approval of you is completely independent of the worst version of yourself. God's love and approval of you is independent of the worst version of yourself. This is good news because this means that when you enter into a relationship with God, there's absolutely no strings attached. Why? Because his spirit has been poured out and he has sealed you so that he is always with you and you belong to him. This is the type of relationship that we have with God. You see, when the New Testament describes who we are, when we are in a relationship with God, the title of preference that is used is not Christian. That only occurs three times. It's not believer. It's not disciple. The primary title used to describe who we are when we are in relationship with God is this, beloved. Beloved, this word occurs 66 times in the New Testament and it beautifully demonstrates the type of intimacy, the type of closeness that we have in our relationship with God. In Christ, we are God's beloved. That means, hear me, that God truly and sincerely loves us. I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine as we read in the songs of songs. Uh, A deep and profound love that God has for you. A profound love that stifles any attempts to make sacrifices out there in exchange for love in here. You are his beloved. He is intimately connected to you and close to you and passionate about you and delights in you and experiences great pleasure and joy towards you. In Christ, independent of your best version or worst version, he is steadfast and faithful to you. And Paul says over and over and over again 
that this is the experience we can enter into through life in the Spirit. Now think about this. This is a pretty good deal. Uh, On one hand, we have 600 plus laws. We can barely remember the first 10 commandments. And on the other hand, we, we have the Holy Spirit. Which one would you take? Well, the answer is obvious. Relationship with God by walking in the Spirit. Why on earth would I choose to subject myself to the law and let the law be the boundaries and, 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 and um, uh, the course that I put my life on so that I can get closer to Jesus when I have the Holy Spirit, His presence inside of me? Why on earth would I choose the law which only reveals bondage and condemnation instead of submitting to the Holy Spirit who brings freedom? The answer is obvious. Holy Spirit all day, am I right? But that's not what we find ourselves in. Because in the book of Galatians, we have a group of people who believe the exact opposite. They believed uh, uh, that, that by rejecting the law of Moses, they would compromise themselves and enter into a life of sin that wouldn't be pleasing to God. And so the Judaizers, the false teachers came in and said, listen, it's not enough just to claim allegiance to Jesus. Don't forget where you came from. Moses is our people and you have to submit to his law, not just the first 10, but all 600 if you want to be identified culturally as Jewish and be blessed by God. And so because fear began to set in and they didn't want to compromise their faith and they wanted to present themselves as holy and blameless before the Lord, they adopted Jesus plus something else in attempts to gain salvation. And Paul comes in and he begins to correct them and he, and he insists this one idea, that the freedom that they long for Uh, The freedom that they long for to please God, the the freedom that they so desire to walk in victory over sin, the freedom they desire is not achieved, it is received. Freedom is not achieved, it is received. It is received from Jesus who died to set us free. That's why the scriptures call freedom life in the spirit. In the scriptures, freedom is life in the spirit, that there is a way of living where we are in step with the spirit in relationship with God that produces a degree of freedom that leads to the quality of life that Jesus lived. And on the opposite, there is a way of living that is out of step with the spirit that produces bondage. And Paul calls this sowing to the flesh. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. We reap what we sow. Uh, this is what uh, uh, people in, from, from reform circles to Pentecostal circles, they all agree on this. They call this the law of harvest. It's simple. We reap what we sow. If we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. If we sow to the spirit, we reap eternal life. So what does sowing to the flesh look like? Sowing to the flesh looks like this. Constantly seeking to satisfy your own selfish desires. Sowing to the flesh looks like constantly seeking to satisfy your own selfish desires. And Paul puts it this way in chapter five, uh, the extreme outworkings of this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I've warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Everybody's favorite scripture, right? What does this mean? Hear me. The habitual practice of these activities with no regard for Christ reveal that you don't live in the kingdom of God. The habitual practice of these activities, doing it over and over again with no regard for Christ, no regard for others, and I would even say no regard for yourself, reveal that you don't live in the kingdom of God. You live in another kingdom, a kingdom that belongs to the enemy. Uh, And now the reason I say habitual practice with no regard for Christ will not inherit the kingdom of Christ, uh, the kingdom of God is because while we're still on this side of eternity, we still give ourselves over to the sinful outworkings of the flesh. We still give ourselves over to these sinful practices. But hear me, let me give you some assurance. When you're sealed with the Holy Spirit and walking as God's beloved, the Spirit of God will lead you to pursue a lifestyle of repentance and continual submission to the Lord when you sin. Not if you sin, when you sin. And not one of continually rejecting the Lord through your sin. When you're walking with Jesus and you have regard for Christ and the Spirit is inside of you, when you sin, His Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth and godliness and holiness and remind your heart to submit to Him and present your life before Him in repentance. And sin does not become your opportunity to reject Christ. Sin becomes, the opportunity, sin becomes this pathway that reveals areas of our heart that still need to be submitted to His Lordship. Sowing to the flesh, seeking to satisfy our own selfish desires, can, I believe can be summed up in, in satisfying four core desires that we all have. Some more than others, but I believe we all uh, uh, seek one of these. Write these down with me. Number one is comfort. Number two is control. Number three is approval. And number four is power. Comfort, control, approval, power, seeking to satisfy these core desires. So, so comfort, what does this look like? Comfort looks like indulging in a lifestyle that you believe will increase the quality of your life and pursuing experiences that, that you believe will give you pleasure and satisfy you. You fill in the blank. What does that look like for you? And, and so what you end up doing is you end up pursuing a lifestyle that you believe will ultimately please you. And the only issue is that instead of making Christ central and asking what part of your life makes the Holy Spirit uncomfortable, you prioritize your comfort over the Lord. And so we begin to seek and satisfy our own selfish desires. And so we begin to to feed into that by maybe rejecting fellowship with God's people because they make us uncomfortable. Or we seek comfort in the flesh by saying, one drink is okay, but, but two is just fine because I know my limits. But, but do you? Or we binge over and over again, whatever show of choice. And hear me, that is not wrong. But more often than not, it's this coping mechanism, isn't it? To escape the problems that we're experiencing out there because we don't know how to internally deal it, with it here. And so we seek comfort as this idol that we bow down to that we hope will momentary 
completely numb the pain. And Paul says when, when we do that, we're sowing to the flesh. The second one is control. It's this idea of having mastery over your life. Uh, and, and, and the thing about control is that, that control is, is an interesting one because we all want to be autonomous to, to some extent, uh, but, but the scriptures actually describe autonomy being this sort of sin that caused Adam and Eve to rebel when they took matters into their own hand. And especially in the day and age that we live in, control produces these two uh, sort of uh, ideas that are at work in our culture and in our own lives, and that's radical individualism, and radical independence. Sociologist Robert Bella, in his book, Habits of the Heart, says this, freedom is perhaps the most resonant, deeply held American value. In some ways, it defines the good in both personal and political life. Yet freedom turns out to mean being left alone by others, not having other people's values, ideas, or styles of life forced upon you, being free of arbitrary authority in work, family, and political life. And what is it that one might do with that freedom is much more difficult for Americans to define. In some sense, he says, freedom to be left alone is a freedom that implies being alone. You see, this is the dark side of sowing to the flesh and seeking control is that it can produce loneliness because only one person can be in control. And if it's not you submitting to the Lord, it's you being in charge of your life and pushing away anybody who comes up against that. Third core desire that uh, I believe we seek to satisfy is approval. Uh, the idea that my life only has meaning, my life only has purpose if this person or this lifestyle or this career accepts me, if my spouse accepts me, if my boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance accepts me, if my kids accept me, if the world accepts me, then I am worthy. And as fickle as we are in believing we're worthy, the world, everything but God, is just as fickle in offering life-changing, steadfast worth and affirmation. Fourth core desire is power. This says something like this, life, life only has meaning if I'm successful and influential. So what you begin to do is you pursue careers and make decisions and post things uh, that portray the most successful and influential version of yourself. Look, family, look how great I am. Look, friends, look how awesome I am. And, and, and the danger of power is that it leaves you thirsty for a glory that's reserved for God alone. And it's dangerous because you've bought into this lie that the only way to justify yourself is by showing the world how significant you are. Instead of finding your worth, value, and identity over and over and over and over and over again in Christ. If that is what you're sowing into your life, if that is what you're feasting upon, what will you reap? Paul says, corruption. Or as other translations say, destruction. And this comes from this Greek word that conveys two ideas. I want you to write these down. The first one is decay, and the second one is disintegration. So what does decay mean? 
Decay is the idea of rotting and decomposing and, and wearing down. The idea that, that if you have poor, maybe oral hygiene, that after a while, the teeth begin to, to wear down and decay. If you don't take care of your body, it begins to, to wear down and decay. It's, it, it's the idea that a lifestyle of sowing to the flesh causes things to rot and decompose and wear down within ourselves and relationally with others. When we sow to the flesh, we accelerate the decaying forces in our life that wear us down and break us down. The second idea is disintegration. One definition says this, the process of losing cohesion or strength, the process of coming to pieces, breaking down, falling apart. Hear me, church. Sin makes things break down and fall apart. When you sow to your selfish desire, the enemy leaves you thinking that you're building something, that, that you're doing what feels right, uh, that, 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 that you're bettering yourself, that, that you know what's best for you, so do what you need to do. But in reality, this is what's happening. You are contributing to the forces of sin that are designed to tear you down that are designed to wear you down, that are designed to leave you so internally conflicted that instead of feeling complete and whole, you feel like there's a dozen different versions of yourself and each day of the week or each uncomfortable circumstance brings out a version of yourself that you thought would be better by now after indulging in every version of power, control, approval, or comfort. And instead of experiencing the life that you've always wanted, feel like you're falling apart. You feel like you're decaying. You feel the corruption and destruction. Here's the good news of the kingdom of God. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The question becomes, well, how do you reap to the, how do you sow to the Spirit? What does that activity look like? You see, sowing to the Spirit is another way of saying walking by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's what Paul says. And Paul is using this imagery of farming, sowing and reaping, harvest, to convey two ideas. That everything we do is planting a seed that will either produce fruit of Christ-likeness or lack thereof. Your life is not meaningless. The decisions you make are not meaningless. The thoughts that you have are not meaningless. Every single decision, every single thought, every single step you take is planting a seed that will either produce a harvest of Christ-likeness or slowly contribute to a slow decay and disintegration. Second idea that's communicated here with sowing and reaping is that it's a lifestyle to be cultivated. John 15, one through five, Jesus says it this way. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that he may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
what's the way of fruitfulness? What's the way of becoming more like Christ? It's not mustering up the most holy version of yourself. It's found in abiding with King Jesus and letting him produce in you what you cannot produce for yourself. And what's so great about abiding is that abiding implies that it takes practice and it's a lifestyle that must be cultivated. You will not be good at it. I am not very good at it. Thaddeus is good at it. (laughs) Come on, let's go. Maybe Brother Paul too. I'll give you that one, Paul. You're holy. Uh, Abiding implies that being with Jesus and walking with Jesus is a life to be cultivated. And it's not one that comes natural to us because of the mechanism of sin that's still at work in our heart on this side of eternity. But abiding does have this promise that the more we are with Jesus, the more we become like Jesus, the more we place ourselves before him and behold his glory, the more we look like him as we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. Abiding is a lifestyle that must be intentionally cultivated. My sophomore year of college, I was hanging out with uh, my friend Shake. And, and Shake at the time, he, he was not a follower of Jesus, wanted nothing to do with Jesus, was absolutely resistant to the way of Jesus. I was head over heels over the person of Christ, completely zealous um, and, and was just so passionate, uh, had, had no theology, had no foundation. I was just falling more and more in love with Christ. And no one taught me the book of Galatians. Uh, there was no series going through it. I was just taught, read your Bible, and I somehow ended up in Galatians. And, uh, and, and, and what I thought about then is not, definitely not what I think about the book now. Uh, praise God for progress. But I remember reading that verse. And I learned it in the NIV. And it says, those who sow to the flesh will reap destruction. And those who sow to the Spirit will reap eternal life. And the Holy Spirit made that so clear to me. I instantly knew what that verse meant. If I sow to my flesh, I'll reap destruction. If I sow to the Spirit, I'll reap eternal life. And I just knew it. That's what it means, right? It's that simple. And it can be that simple that time, uh, the, uh, sometimes. And as I'm sitting with my friend Shake, and uh, we're, we're having free birds, and he says, church man, why don't you do what we do? And he's referring to this other group of friends that I was befriending. He's like, you don't do what we do. You don't hang out with us. You don't go to the parties we go to. You don't talk like us. Why don't you do what we do? And instantly the Holy Spirit brought this verse to mind. And I said, Shake, if I sow to the flesh, I'll reap destruction. But if I sow to the Spirit, I'll reap eternal life. And Shake, a man who, knew, who did not know the word, who wasn't following Jesus, looked at me and said, yeah, that makes sense. Because it does. When you sow to your own selfish desires, you're not building a life that will be foundational for progress and growth and betterment. You're contributing to the forces that are designed to destroy it. And when you sow to the Spirit and you come in partnership with the creator of the universe, as you sit in his presence and abide with him, he begins to recreate the parts of you that have been destroyed by sin. When you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. Now, here is the bad news, and then we'll address the good news. The the bad news, and you know this because we live in this, is that sowing to the Spirit is really difficult because it involves self-denial, the renunciation of self carrying our cross to be identified with Jesus. 
and the flesh uh, as we're in this overlapping of ages has this uh, tendency to promote our self de- self-serving desires ahead of others and ahead of God and, and, and tempts us into putting those desires and feeding them so that they can come to life instead of putting them to death. Self-denial is not an easy thing to do. But here's the good news of the kingdom of God, church. Jesus perfectly denied himself of the powers and splendors of heaven, denied himself of the pleasures and temptations of the world, and he lived a life of perfectly sowing to the Spirit so that you and I, who have sown to the flesh, can taste the fruit of Christ's obedience and reap all of his blessings. Jesus perfectly denied himself the powers and splendors of heaven and walked into our sinful world, reversing the effects of sin, denying himself of the pleasures and temptations that were brought upon him so that you and I who give into those pleasures, who give into those temptations, who've brought ourselves a curse because of the law can experience Christ's freedom because he died on the cross for our sins so that we can reap all of his blessings, his freedom, his life, his power, his joy, his obedience, his victory, his love, his relationship with the Father, his dependency on the Spirit, his ability to deny himself now inside of us, sealed, not going anywhere when we place our faith and trust and rely on King Jesus to carry us into glory. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. The freedom you long for is not found in self-sufficiency. It is not found in dependence on self. The good news of the kingdom of God is that freedom means submission and relationship to God through Jesus and in the spirit. You want freedom, you want fruit, you want eternal life, which is the life that Jesus lived. We have access to that through the spirit because he died to get his spirit inside of us so that we can enter into relationship with God and freedom is the presence of Jesus in our lives through the Holy Spirit. Freedom is the presence of Jesus and dependence on the Spirit. It's not controlling your life, but allowing the Spirit to lead your life. And Jesus firsthand demonstrates that a life of sowing to the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, walking with the Spirit, and not the flesh is life-giving and satisfying. And when Jesus grew weary and he grew tired, because you will grow weary and you will grow tired, Jesus found strength, not by focusing on his momentary affliction, but by meditating on a future reality for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, knowing that his suffering would be the pathway to his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. The good news of the kingdom of God is this. Eternal life, walking with the spirit, freedom, is a gift received, not achieved. This life is a gift received from God, not achieved. Beholding his glory, beholding his beauty, setting yourself before him, abiding with him, and letting the good gardener take the initiative in cultivating the life that you've always desired and the life you never knew you needed. 
letting the creator recreate the parts of your life that's been disintegrated and decayed by sin as he brings you into wholeness because the peace of God that we have with the Father because of Christ through the Spirit, this life is ours. This is a gift received, not achieved. So let's receive this morning as we close in prayer.